Welcome to A Leader's Journey Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Gunn, and today I have with me our guest, Brad Hunt. Brad, welcome to the show. Good to be here. You and I have uh, known of each other for a lot of years, but oh, we don't know each other well. A lot of years. Let's <laughs> think about it. Yeah, so I'm excited to have you on the show and get to know you a little bit better. Glad to be here. Yeah, um, we were we were talking before the show You from the Midwest and came to yep. San Antonio pursuing the, a career. And I'm that poster child with the bumper sticker. Got here quick as I could. I uh, grew up in the Midwest, uh, the burbs of Chicago, a little bit of time in Wisconsin and Ohio, but for the most part, Illinois. Went to school, undergrad was Illinois, grad school is Purdue, and out of school, electrical engineering background, went to work for Motorola designing engine computers, hmm. predominantly for Ford, a little bit of Honda, Chrysler, John Deere, and everything I worked on in Chicago was built down here in Seguin, so my first ever business trip, 21 years old, was to come to San Antonio, see the Riverwalk, and I went, Where, where's the tumbleweeds? Where's the cactus? Yeah. <laughs> oh, never been to Texas before, all the stereotypes. And yeah. four or five years later, Motorola said, hey, how about you do a rotation in, on the manufacturing side? Just maybe a year or two months. I literally had a handshake deal with the corporate VP who kind of was an early sponsor and mentor. If, if you don't like it, 10 months. Give it 10 months. Not, not even a year. It was interesting, it was 10 months. Mm-hmm. 10 months, and if it doesn't work out, I'll move you back. I'll find you a job, I promise. Shook hands. And I think, you know, just wise, wise guy that knew that 10 months is when your wife stops crying kind of thing. <laughs> so that was a one-year sort of commitment, and that was 87, so been here ever since. Yeah. So it's home for sure. My wife and I got married in 87, and uh, for many years, every chance she got, she was looking for me for a job somewhere else. She did not want to <laughs> be in Texas. <laughs> Yeah, the first, uh, the first trip, the house hunting trip came down here. It was also the company picnic. And there's this like this kind of venue that's out, out I-10. I'm trying to remember the name of it. But on, kind of on the river there, mm. River Ranch or something like that. But that's where the company picnic was. And it was, it was brutal mm. that day. It was like, you know, 103 kind of day. Mm-hmm. And you get out of the rental car, having looked at houses in South Austin, Eastern San Antonio, you know, being proximal to Seguin. Mm-hmm. I couldn't go from Chicago to the town of Seguin. That just, that wasn't <laughs> too much of a leap. That was an option, you know, <laughs> looking at my wife, please, no. But we get out of the car, you know, and just being, you know, Midwesterners, it's just a very different culture here. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're, we just were getting out of the car, it's 100 degrees, and they started the cow chip throwing contest. <laughs> it's like, are these people throwing poop into toilets? <laughs> it's like, that's, that's just not, we didn't grow up with that kind of stuff. Yeah. So anyhow, but yeah, it's home now and love it. It'd have to be a God would have to put a giant neon sign in the sky to say to leave for me to prime me out of here. Yeah, yeah, that's the same thing that happened to my wife. She's fallen in love with it. The uh, well, let's let's talk about your your early career. Uh, you know, obviously, you had somebody watching out for you, corporate VP. Yeah, got you down here. Um, as you engaged, what what was that? Like, was it all uh, roses or, or were there a few challenges? Oh, no. The there way? was, uh, you know, this was, this is, um, so this is 87, but out of school is 82. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed for a job that um, I wasn't even really interested in Motorola at the time, but they were going to pay me to come back to Chicago. So that's where my girlfriend was. And hey, I'll get free gas money to come back and interview because I had kind of already accepted a job in Iowa with uh, Rockwell Collins, that makes avionics. Mm-hmm. But I'll, okay, what the heck, I'll go. And I meet this guy who interviews me, and I really liked him. And he said, do you have any questions for me? I said, well, what's it really like to work here? And he goes, well, I don't know. It's my first day. <laughs> so, um, but we really clicked, and um, I was going to work on this cool, cool project for Caterpillar, the, the 
control box that runs a gen set, you know, the big giant generator for a hospital or a data center. Mm. And that was the project. And it had to do this and it had to do that. And it looked really, really cool. So I took that job. And uh, I remember calling in before I started work saying, it's my first real job. I've never worked anywhere before. And I took my last final on a Saturday and was starting work on a Monday because, you know, I needed the money and put myself through school and mm-hmm. wasn't going to go. At least my era, we didn't go, well, let's go backpack through Europe for, for three months. <laughs> it's like, get to work. Yeah. So I, I, I call up and say, what do I do on Monday? And who do I look for? Whatever. He said, well, the HR guy says, don't, don't, don't come in at 8. We'll wait for the HR people to all get here because there's some paperwork you got to do. And I go, okay, I wonder what this is all be like. He says, oh, and by the way, that job position we hired you for, um, it's actually been canceled. So we're going to put you on this program for Ford uh, for some for them. And I was like, I kind of heard in the interview process about that. It's like, oh, no, I don't want to touch that. Maybe I can call Rockwell Collins back and could I accept the offer and then reneged on the offer. Maybe I could go back that way. I thought, oh, this is going to be. This is going to be, you know, terrible. But I show up and, you know, and I meet the people that I never interviewed with, I'd never met, and I meet my boss, and he goes, hi, my name's Alan, and uh, I won't see you for the next six weeks because I'm actually relocating to Chicago from Texas, and I'll be down there closing up things and things. So, um, you know, you'll get some direction from this guy over here for a little while, and he gave me a stack of stuff to read, and I was probably so nervous I wasn't paying attention. Because one of them, a little, little technical here, but one of them was kind of the design specs, and the other one was all the testing specs, how you tested it to make sure it was working right. And I thought that was the one I was supposed to read first. And so I'm reading this thing, and I'm going, I, I have no idea what this is about. They're going to find out I know nothing about everything, and I know everything about nothing, and I'm going to get canned in six weeks' time. And, you know, it, it sort of worked out. And then that time period was when the legislation had been enacted for CAFE, the corporate average fuel economy, the, the gas guzzler ta- tax. Mm-hmm. So engine computers were going to take over the world of cars, and it was a classic hockey stick, mm-hmm. which sounds great, and it was great. That part of our part of Motorola boomed because of that. But, you know, classic, what doesn't kill you, make you stronger. We weren't really as ready as we thought we were in the plant. So pretty much everybody in R&D wound up working in the plant kind of Monday through Friday for – I was down here for almost three months doing that. Some of my colleagues were down here for even longer, mm. trying to get everything ready. And I can remember a couple different times we had to charter a Learjet or whatever it was to land at the New Braunfels Airport and drive over there with product, you know, engine computers for Ford, and unload them off of the pallet because the pallet wouldn't fit through the door. <laughs> unload them off the pallet, slip the pallet through the door, put the pallet back flat, restack all the stuff, bind it. Plane takes off, lands at some little other podunk airport near a body assembly plant in, in the Midwest somewhere, and then unload them, get the pallet out, unreload them, all that stuff. And so a technician, a Motorola guy would be on that plane and drive them to just keep that plant running and not shut down that assembly plant because we were behind or they made a schedule change. There was mutual ownership on that. It wasn't mm-hmm. like we were the only source of the problem. Mm-hmm. Ford was trying to figure it out too. But, you know, it, it went well uh, overall. We survived and, you know, kind of a band of brothers experience. So a lot of those guys I'm still in touch with, even though that was, you know, 40 years ago. And uh, so it was, it was not easy, but uh, a, lot of, a lot of really cool people. So mm-hmm. you, Before the show, you mentioned uh, we were talking about kind of major pivotal moments in your career. And one that jumped out right away was the fire at Columbia. 
Tell yeah, us that, that was a story. so I left I left corporate America. I left Motorola in the in the early nineties in ninety three. My I'd been in the plant the one year became two. A couple kids come along. Now it's been almost almost six, and they're like, hey, it's time. We need you to go someplace else. And I was like, well, oh maybe. And, you know, where's gonna, where am I going to go? I'm going to go back to Chicago. I go to another plant in New York. Uh, and that wouldn't be likely because I was kind of out of headroom. And I was pretty young at the time, 32. Mm-hmm. And uh, the job they wanted me to take was a sales position uh, in Detroit, calling on calling on Ford, which is the biggest the biggest customer Motorola had. Uh, not just my division of Motorola, but all of Motorola hmm. because of all at the time Motorola Semiconductor was selling gobs and gobs of chips to Ford. So that's under the whole corporate umbrella. So, you know, I couldn't do it. That I knew was a career limiting move that, you know, you just kind of said, nope, no more corporate golden boy. I'm, I'm jettisoning that vision and don't, don't challenge me. Don't give me any more advancement. I was interested in advancement, but that, that was all they have. I could have maybe jumped ship to the semiconductor group or the cellular group or to Florida for pagers. You know, remember when everybody had a beeper? Yeah. All of that, I just couldn't see leaving San Antonio. The quality of life here is, it's not understood unless you've moved here and lived someplace else. You know, the, for years I've seen the Forbes and Fortune, you know, top places to live, and San Antonio's maybe in the top 30, 40, but I've been all over the country. I've been to everywhere but five states at this point, mm-hmm. worked in almost all those places, and this is, this is a secret treasure that people haven't figured out, and let's not tell them. Don't tell them, Joel. How we'll have to cut that from the, from the video. And, uh, being a career limiting move, I knew I had to start looking for something else. And literally through a headhunter in Chicago, I found out about Columbia, which was, you know, uh, Columbia Bowling Balls was part of the kind of the, the, the Herman family, Zeller family empire, Sun Harvest, Western Beverages, a whole bunch of things. So get to become a kind of a big fish in a smaller pond. And then we had a fire and uh, a fire that was a, a, a dust collection system that was supposedly explosion proof, had a small glitch. Um, exploded. It was a dust explosion, just like a grain silo in the Midwest. And uh, one person was hurt, but not seriously, because uh, the door, when it exploded, came off and kind of hit him in the back of the head. Ooh. But, you know, it was fine, some stitches, maybe a real mild concussion. Mm-hmm. But what we didn't know was the, the dust uh, collection system, you know, a big set of vacuum, you know, basically collecting dust from parts of the factory, it was still smoldering in there. And then it caught fire inside the duct where nobody could see it and moved through the duct system to other parts of the, of the factory. Wow. And it got to a place where we had um, inventory, almost ready, fin- almost finished goods. It's in a, like a giant carousel. And if you, anybody that's a scout or, or whatever, I guess uh, any kind of scouting, male or female, probably done a campfire, knowing how you want to stack the woods with, with air in between and hollow in the middle so it can get draft and air, that's how it's stacked, that's how it's rolled. That caught fire, mm. and that became the real fire. And the heat was so hot, it literally melted the rebar inside the concrete. And then the concrete caved in, and that's when they could finally get water on it. So like a tire fire, you know, bowling balls are made of a polymer that doesn't melt. You know, you, you make it once, like a urethane or epoxy, and it's solid forever. It won't melt. It'll catch fire, though, and then it burns like tires. Very, very hot, very mm. hard to extinguish. Mm. So that was a dark, dark day. Um, I made my, my television debut when Fox 29 shoved a camera in my face uh, for the, uh, whatever that, that weird, the 1030 news. Remember they had the 1030 news after the other news? Mm-hmm. And that's because we had all this fire water from hours and hours of fighting the fire that had run off the property and into the, the storm sewer drainage thing. 
Now it's benign. It's got mm-hmm. some colors in it. It looks mm-hmm. like that, but you know the the chemistry in bowling balls is akin to the chemistry in melamine dishes, the airplane dishes that we all eat on. It's yeah, there's a colorant, but it's mm-hmm. there's no heavy metals or anything like that. Mm-hmm. That's you know, think about it. You go to a bowling bowling center and you bowl. You you put your hand in the bowling ball and then later eat some French fries and you know it's it's fine. It's safe, non toxic, but it looks scary and looks, crazy. Yeah. So what are you going to do about this fire water? You know, it's like well, you know deer in the headlights look at, and we'd all been up by, I think for, you know, 30, 40 hours at that point, trying to figure out what were, what were we going to do? Mm-hmm. So, you know, a wonderful teamwork. We kind of set up tents in the back and put, moved the factory outdoors. And we had a whole bunch of product line we just couldn't make because of what had been damaged, but we were able to cobble together enough stuff to keep other things rolling and, you know, kind of came through it. But that was a, that was a big blow. And uh, in the, much of our business, almost half our business, if not maybe more than half, forget the figures, was overseas. Mm. Uh, per capita, the Far East is a much bigger bowling market, say, than the U.S. was at that time. And there are a bunch of different events that had happened, some big economic collapse in Korea, and a terrible fire in a bowling center in Taiwan where a bunch of people had been killed, mm. and it made them enforce a bunch of uh, building code things and egress issues that were not managed well. So the international market's tanking. We had a fire, et cetera, and um, it didn't get much easier. There was a, one of the, uh, the owners had a significant health issue, and then we had a plane crash mm. and killed four people that were guests, and our plane that we had that I used to fly around on a little bit um, died and, and uh, killed the pilot and real close to the plant. And it was – so the family kind of took, I think, a hard look at reality, and there was some divesting that needed to occur, and uh, – our advisory board asked us officers, what do you think we should do? And we all kind of wrote our own little thing. I wrote this long white paper and kind of talked about how top heavy we were. We had some great people, but we were, much of us were Fortune 100 castaways, Motorola, Rawlings, Coleman, a bunch of folks that were uh, Philip 66, some Ernst & Young, trying to remember all the different companies, Coca-Cola, that was the leadership team. And you just could, business couldn't afford us. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, in essence, got to be the author of my own demise. Had started some consulting at the time there with their support. So it was really nice to be an entrepreneur with, with somebody else's money. Mm-hmm. And I got to keep that that book, that brand that I had, little bit that I built up, mm-hmm. and that's what launched me. So it's kind of one of those. Well, what are we going to do now? It's going to kind of hang up the shingle and get to work. So um, <clears throat> before we go there, how many people were at the Columbia plant or? site here in San Antonio at the time? Oh, at the time, I think our census would have been right around 200. Okay. So it was a sizable impact. Yeah, we were producing over a million million balls a year. We mm-hmm. were the we were the largest, and we pretty much were the market leader in just about every segment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were always kind of being, trying to be benchmarked. Uh, Brunswick approached us, competitor, to mm-hmm. build balls for them. We did build balls for AMF. Uh, I was responsible for the sales side of the private label balls, so we would put balls that we made or designed, but would put somebody else's name on them, like Wilson, mm-hmm. um, Head, the ski company, mm-hmm. we made balls for them, Wilson, a uh, bunch of folks like that uh, that would either go to Europe or the Far East. What was what would you say culturally was the biggest, um, the biggest negative, I guess, of, of the fire? How, how did the team, the culture absorb that? What was, or some well, of the concerns? The culture actually absorbed it incredibly well. Uh, incredibly resilient people. Um, one of our, one of our uh, international, one of the brands we had was called Track, and one of their VPs had gone through school as a, working in warehouses and things. 
So he had spent, I don't know, all of his college living on a forklift. Hmm. So we had some forklift people, but they were busy typically being forklift people working in the warehouse and trying to ship with the product. We didn't have really any finished good product that was, we had soot, but it didn't burn up finished goods. It was all whip that got burnt up. Hmm. And I remember Steve, Steve Wunderlich was his name, and he's on a forklift for days in the heat outside moving product and baskets because it was so inefficient. You know, we, we took a, a really compact uh, plant. We'd done a really good job of group technology, GT cells, kind of the Toyota production system playbook, and all the lean, we were all schooled in that. So we had this nice, tight, very efficient factory. And now we're going to dismantle it and scatter it across a campus that's, I'm going to guess our campus was... Oh, I guess at least probably two or three acres. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's 100 yards from where this is going to be to where it needs to go. And there's this vice president in, in, in Texas heat, late August heat, driving a forklift back and forth for hours and hours. So everybody did whatever they needed to do, could do, to mm-hmm. pitch in. So, do, do you think the team seeing a leader rolling up a sleeves, that, did that uh, empower them more, you think? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, that's, you know, lead by example certainly is illustrated in that. But to there's me, two schools of thought, right? There's kind of a, a classic, you know, as a leader, you need to keep some distance from your people and, you know, so that they respect you and all, all of those things that go with that school of thought. Yeah. And then there's the other kind of extreme of, uh, and you see companies like uh, the grocery store Trader Joe's. There's no office. There's no, everybody's even though they've got a couple of tiers of employee management, it's not obvious when you walk in the store. Yeah. Uh, where, where did you see Columbia's culture and did it change because of the fire? I think it just leveraged what was a positive culture there in the first place, mm-hmm. that we were more approachable. I mean, Roger Zeller and Ron Herman were all called Mr. Herman and Mr. Zeller because out of just pure respect. Mm. Uh, Roger Zeller was an amazing man. He was one of the first, uh, he was a uh, Air Force guy, a fighter bomber in World War II, shot down very early in the war over Italy Hmm. and escaped Hmm. and um, wasn't allowed to tell a story because they literally used the tactics. He didn't speak a lick of Italian. He's, you know, true Anglo like you or I and very tall. Well, like I think I can't remember, maybe 6'4", 6'5". And so So he didn't fit in. Didn't fit in, didn't speak any Italian, and he did things to whatever. I'm sure it was all classified about how he did it because they were going to use that technique to teach other pilots if you get shut down, do what Mr. Zeller did, kind of, or Colonel Zeller, General Zeller. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was kind of that kind of uh, a positive aura. Mm. Uh, he knew everybody's name. Mm. Uh, he was very charismatic that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine a, uh, I'm trying to think who would be a typical leader like that that'd be super approachable but very nurturing. Mm-hmm. Herb Kelleher at Southwest comes mm-hmm. to mind. Jim Senegal at Costco comes to mind. That kind of one-off that Jim Collins writes about, that, mm-hmm. that mystique of that fifth-level leader. Mm-hmm. Amazing talent, but you know, low, huge talent, small ego. Good. And uh, so I think that just, we leveraged that. Mm-hmm. And um, the Herman family the same way. So that was a, it was a, it was a blow, but we, we recovered pretty darn well, all things considered. What, what would you say were some of your biggest takeaways from that season in your career? It was, it was a really difficult time. Um, besides that, on the personal side, my daughter um, had been misdiagnosed and had a ruptured appendix, and we almost lost her. Mm. Uh, she spent three or four days in ICU, and another six or seven days after that in the hospital. And it was literally 
right after the fire. We were still dealing with the fire stuff within like you know a week or two. Mm. And I would go to the hospital um, at night to stay there with her. And then my wife at the time would come in and spend the time during the day with her. And it was just, it was such a grind. Mm -hmm. And, you know, perseverance, I think, is a giant lesson in there. You, uh, you have to admit you're stressed out. Um, you're maybe short-tempered. You're sleep-deprived. And, you know, that's what apologies are for. Mm. No one's going to get it right under situations like that. Mm -hmm. But everybody literally, what, what can I do? What can I do? And so I think the camaraderie that we had built, just uh, we tapped it. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we had a positive culture mm -hmm. before then, mm -hmm. and we were able to tap that. And then, of course, that just made some of us tighter. One of my right-hand people that I work with still inside my firm, Y Group, uh, Nick Burgett is his name, and Nick was all in that time period. So mm. Nick and I have been through it together. That's over 25 years ago now. Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> but before we got on the air, we were talking about some things, and uh, and you mentioned the word fear, which is is a word I've started using more on purpose with leaders the last couple of years. So it caught my ear when you said it. Um, it's a word leaders don't like to use a lot because it sounds weak. Sure does. Uh, what what are your thoughts around around that? Well, that's a great question. You know, you we always it's easy for us quote leaders, experts, us guys that have this. It's different colors now, have you noticed, Joel? Yeah, to, mine's dark to, black still. Exactly, uh, and mine's super thick and bushy on the top. <laughs> we used to have, you know, it's easy to talk about fear as this general thing and and tell a bunch of leaders, you know, we have to embrace our fears and things like that. Just mm -hmm. don't ask me to embrace mine mm -hmm. or admit that I have those things. So it's very easy to, one of those, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we, we have all the solid science, the psychological science that everybody is fears. You know, it's it's the probably read about this, maybe maybe you haven't, but that, you know, Tom Cruise still has a giant imposter syndrome. You know, he's, that, I just saw that that most recent movie, did not, well, spoiler alert, did not know it was part one of two. <laughs> They're not, it's not, this movie's not gonna tie up in a bow, everyone, so mm -hmm. get over it already. But jumping off a, the cliff in that motorcycle, that was his stunt, he does all his own stunts. And mm -hmm. those movies are incredibly successful, and you think of all the movies he's made, and Top Gun, of course, and. Mm -hmm. And every time he's still worried that may maybe I'm not enough, maybe I don't really have what it takes. So that, that part of imposter syndrome, we all nod our head to it. But it's another thing to, to tell your team or your colleague that I'm, I'm struggling. Mm -hmm. And it's another thing to get out of bed when you'd rather not get out of bed, just pull back under the covers and get up and you know try to build a practice. Uh, I've been kind of doing this now for, it'll be the, it's the 20th year. Mm. And you know those first couple of years were it's just plain old scary. Mm -hmm. Is this going to work? What's going to happen? You know, I borrowed some money for myself out of the house equity to, to try to make bills at some point. And, and you know, they, everyone tells you it's two, three years to build something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, no, not me. You know how smart I am, how hardworking <laughs> I am. I have, I have great relationships. People like working with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leverage that. And this thing's just going to be humming in, you know, six weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's two to three years. And, and I, I have thoughts on that. I think it's the, it's all about the speed of referral, mm. especially the kind of things that, you know, that you do through C12 and yourself that I do. They're really consultative services, mm. you know, professional services that are strategic and facilitate, but they're not a, we're not selling a piece of software that's going to revolutionize something. We're not selling some product that's going to go viral on QVC. Mm -hmm. We're selling kind of ourselves. Mm. And it's not that we don't know how to sell ourselves. It's just that everybody's busy. 
mm-hmm. the frenetic pace that the planet runs at. And so you talk to somebody and somebody says, oh, Brad's could really help you and, and they'll help your team, help you, help your organization. And they go, okay, that's great. And then they don't call, mm-hmm. they don't follow up. Mm-hmm. Not because they don't believe that, but they're just, they're just busy. Mm. Their inbox is overflowing. They have all the other tactical, you know, Franklin Covey calls it the whirlwind mm-hmm. that they have to deal with. And time goes by, and time goes by. And they finally, out of desperation, Joel, how do I get a hold of Brad again? What's that guy, was that his name, Brad, right? Mm-hmm. And then he calls, mm-hmm. and then we meet, and maybe puts me to work, and it goes great. But that took you know nine months, and then you know he says something to one of his buddies through, pick through the circle, a chamber, tab, vistage, C12, you know just a commission. We were talking about our, our friend, mutual friend Doug Carlberg, an AME conference. Mm-hmm. Oh, you should call this guy Brad Hunt. You talk to the Y Group; they're going to be really good for you. And he goes, well, okay. And the same kind of nine month cycle happens for him. Mm-hmm or her, and then it's not until there's enough of those that you stop having to make phone calls and the phone starts ringing. Mm-hmm. And now you're like, shoot, I owe that guy a proposal. <laughs> I'm, I'm behind this week on a proposal for the city of Corpus Christi that they're looking for, and that, you know, I'm returning calls. Mm-hmm. But that's a two to three year process for that slow moving virus, which we used to talk about things going viral before, but mm-hmm. post COVID it's a little bit more intense <laughs> to use that metaphor. And, but that, that's about how long it just takes for mm-hmm. do enough work that enough of those referrals, and people just are so busy. It's not that they don't need your help. It's not that you don't know what you're doing. It's just going to take that much time. Mm-hmm. Uh, our audience is pretty diverse. We've, we've got uh, you know, solopreneurs to corporate execs uh, that have tuned into the podcast. But let's, let's talk to the, the smaller service-based businesses for a second because – the, you've been there, done that. I've been there, done that uh, from you know, consulting services primarily for the two of us, but just services in general. So um, what if somebody's done the two to three year thing and then had some success? Do you, do you ever see like a reboot happening where it's another two to three years to, you know, as you as you try to yeah. level up or whatever? Yeah, I think or become that's somebody different. Become somebody, I think that's a, a very legitimate thing. And you know, to me, that's back to what really is your personal vision and what really is your personal sweet spot. You can talk about a, a concept I'm a huge fan of is where do you find your opus? Hmm. You know, the, the, there's kind of two main words of an, an Latin for work. Labor is one and opus is the other. You know, and we say this feels like a whole lot of work. We're talking about labor. But if you say, Joel, can I play for you my latest work? Or I'd like to unveil my latest work. Completely different. Mm-hmm. We're not even talking about you're a piece of work. I'm going to go to the gym and work out. I mean, English is sloppy. Mm-hmm. That's probably why it's good that Latin is the language of medicine. So we <laughs> operate on the right side of the body, not the, the wrong side of the body. Yeah. And um, that whole idea of who are you, what do you really want to be when you grow up, is, you know, it's a lifelong pursuit. Mm-hmm. I never wanted our practice to really big scale. I was kind of more the solopreneur. And I, I like our size. You know, we are, there's kind of three of us that are core, and then ancillary folks that come in. I don't want to stop doing the work to run the business. Mm-hmm. I like working in the business as much as on the business, probably maybe to a fault. Mm-hmm. That's not going to change. Mm-hmm. I like doing the work. I just led a three-day retreat for a spectacular little CPA firm here, you know, 16 people, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. I would not want to be the one, well, how'd the retreat go? And how'd the retreat coaching my team to do retreats better? I want to touch it. I want to do it. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, I guess the player coaches, the people that 
retire from a sport and don't want to coach because they just, just they love playing but not so much coaching. It's mm -hmm. a different mm -hmm. it's a different gift. Mm -hmm. So I think people are getting really um, well assessed internally, being very self aware. What's your sweet spot? I think there are people that are better as a number two than a number one, and that's DNA. That's how God brought them to the planet, mm -hmm. and they could be the they could be the vice president of the United States and do a wonderful job, but they couldn't be president of a small company. Mm -hmm. They could be the, a rear admiral, but they probably were never very good as a captain of a rowboat even. They, mm -hmm. They're better as the, the number two. Mm -hmm. I think that's me. Mm -hmm. I think I'm a much better assistant to the number one, coach to the number one, mentor, advisor, sounding board, mm -hmm. than I would be as the, the guy. Mm -hmm. Right now, I'm the guy. You know, Y group was four guys, a, a Wilson, a Huey, a Hunt, and a Yarbrough, and I'm last man standing because just, they just aged out on me. Mm -hmm. Still connected all three of them, but they're all semi-retired in some form or another. Mm -hmm. And I think recognizing that and not having aspirations to be something that you're not just because you read a book that said, here's how to scale. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe you shouldn't scale. Mm -hmm. Maybe you should enjoy the lifestyle you have, have some, some decent life balance, mm -hmm. and recognize that. Now, granted, if it's a service that's going to become obsolete, uh, that's a whole other thing. You're, you know, where you're location-based. That's, but I think the services that we're talking about, and probably your audience is more familiar with, are more B two B services, mm -hmm. not B two C. Like, well, dry cleaning—that's a service. Mm -hmm. You don't have any product. You take stuff in. You do stuff to it, and you give it back. That probably something is a little bit different with how many locations you're going to have to have. You're going to have to scale. It's the only way you'll get economy of scale. You're, you're surviving, you know, it's the food truck guys that, mm -hmm. that want to get to a certain level and then they know if you get past this, I probably need brick and mortar and my food truck will turn into a, a brick and mortar place. Mm -hmm. So depending on the industry, but I think the very first question is who are you? Mm. What are you aspiring for? Do you understand you have limitations that all the, all the Harvard workshops in the world aren't gonna change this fundamental DNA neurology that you've built and that, to me, is the first question. Do you think our society works against that reality? In other words, we always, we always, um, feels like society in general, at least Western culture, United States in particular, if you're not the CEO, you're nobody. If you're not Michael Jordan, you're not an athlete. If yeah. you're not, you know, the best of the world class, if you're not number one, then you might as well just you know cash it in because you're nobody. I agree. Yeah. You know, self acceptance is maybe a tough thing to do, and you know the the fear of missing out, you know, uh, envying the Joneses, all of all of that kind of stuff. We are impregnated with that. I mean, we're, we're marketed to that way. Mm -hmm. Don't you don't you want the new Beamer? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, well, yeah, it's an eighty five thousand dollar vehicle. Yeah, but it'd be so cool. <laughs> I could just see myself with the top down driving around and have everybody go, wow, he must be successful because he's driving this new Beamer. And, that, you know, that's, you know, I love the, you know, that, that aspiration for material wealth is great. I think you should be work towards being financially secure. I think that's an achievable goal. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's the old way, way, way back, dating myself, the Larry Burkett's, the Ron Blues, and, of course, you know, the Dave Ramsey, the rock star of that now. Mm -hmm. I love that phrase, you, you can't out-earn stupid. Mm -hmm. And so putting the materialism part of it aside, being successful, who you are, self-acceptance in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm actually trying to shift myself at this point. I'm trying to speak more and consult a little bit less mm. and maybe do more inspirational type mm -hmm. work for people, getting their mindset changed and, and that form of an encouraging, inspirational, and entertaining because 
I do tend to be kind of quite the cut up, but um, more of that than in the trenches. Um, we're doing a, a cool project up for the city of Austin right now and, and really helping being outside eyes, uh, collaborating with a former city of San Antonio exec who's up there and um, trying to make this organization hum and accelerate the effectiveness of the organization. And my team are just better at that than I'll ever be. Mm. I can make a cameo on a great topic, but mm -hmm. them rolling up their sleeves, being deep in the trenches on that, they've got stamina for that, endurance for that, a desire for that that I, I don't have. Mm -hmm. And so getting really in tune with yourself, I'm, I'm a huge fan of assessment tools. Mm -hmm. I'm a, kind of a junkie for that. You know, I, there's not a tool I haven't tried. I mean, dozens and dozens of them. From the expensive ones to the dirt cheap ones. To I'm a tool guy myself too. So what what tools do you like? Uh, would you recommend to those solopreneurs maybe as a starting place? Okay. That's a great question. I love first of all biggest bang for the buck on the planet hands down can't argue with this is Gallup's Strength Finder. Okay. They call it Clifton Strength Finder now, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. if you know the Gallup story, Donald Clifton it was his life's work. He started on it really in the 50s and he was the CEO of Gallup. So he died after the Strength Finder came to market. And they kind of renamed it to the Clifton Strength Finder in honor to their former CEO. And Dan Rath, who wrote, you know, How Full Is Your Bucket and all those things in the little white Strength Finder book, that's Clifton's grandson. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a family business there in Omaha. Nice. So that tool, you know, sometimes you get those on Amazon for 15, 16 bucks, mm -hmm. the book with a code. That, mm -hmm. That's just low hanging fruit. And the amount of resources on the Gallup website that you get with that book that you can just mine for yourself to self coach, self develop is just immense. Mm. After that, I think the next tool you should look at is some kind of simplistic behavioral assessment. That could be DISC, that could be Myers-Briggs, mm -hmm. there's others that are past that, but those are the cheaper, low-hanging fruit ones. There's a lot of folks that are anti-Myers-Briggs at this point because it's kind of become apparent that some of the validation work that was done was not solid enough, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. in contrast to DISC. And as soon as you start talking about disc, you got to say which flavor. Yeah, because there's, there's all these flavors, flavors or more. I kind of use the original disc that came out of Minnesota with a. You can tell it's got a lowercase i in the disc. It's the only one that's trademarked, and it's Inkscape Publishing, and they've done such a solid job over the years. Then Wiley, the publishing juggernaut, bought them about ten years ago. Mm. So I kind of stay in that mainstream. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like I'm the I'm in the Microsoft Excel world rather than the uh, Visicalc world mm -hmm. or things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lotus one two three, but um, that's kind of that to me is just price of entry. That's a simple skeleton with where are some of your sweet spots when it comes to your gifting strength mm -hmm, finder. Mm -hmm. Then how do you tend to see the world? Not about your ability, just how do you tend to see the world? That's a disc or a Myers Briggs. You get that next year after that, Hogan's and Berkman's and things like that. My favorite new tool, and I'm relatively new to this tool, um, only been using it a couple three years now, is the Harrison assessment. Hmm. Uh, Dan Harrison is. It's his, his thesis, his PhD, his whatever. It's built quite a base of it. And I was introduced to it from a guy who is the uh, VP of HR for Goodyear and all over the world with Goodyear in South America, China, opening offices and things. And they used it as a both a pre-hire talent assessment as well as a coaching developmental assessment. Mm. And it's just got tremendous legs. And it's surprisingly low cost, mm. surprisingly low cost. Their business model is even different to send the assessment to somebody's free. You only then pay once you start running reports. And this report's 20 bucks, this report's 50 bucks, this report's 120 bucks. But once you get to about, you know, 250, $300, say, well, you spent enough money with us, you can have everything. Um, really unique that way. And it's got tremendous legs, incredibly well validated. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my current one. But 
you can keep going to the, the talent pluses, mm -hmm. the motivated ability patterns where you get interviewed like this for you know two hours, they transcribe it, and neuro-linguistic programming PhDs creep all over it and then give you a 50-page <laughs> dossier on yourself, and you read it, and you go, you have been in my closet spying on me my entire life. <laughs> um, so everything in between. So depending on who it they is. They take a podcast and figure us out. I, they, I bet they would. <laughs> they, you, they'd want to be paid for it. Sure. Highly trained professionals. Yeah. But those kind of tools are at your disposal. So depending on what your budget is, mm -hmm. I'm a fan of, well, what does your budget allow? Mm -hmm. Do that. But mm -hmm. at a minimum, a behavioral type assessment like a DISC or Myers-Briggs mm -hmm. and just a simple gift assessment, strengths finder. Mm -hmm. oh, Marcus Buckingham, former Gallup guy, standout would fit into that. There's there's others like that. Mm -hmm. The uh, the Fascinator uh, report from, I can't remember, uh, Sally Hogs Hogshead, Hogsworth. It's, it sounds like that. It's not a Harry Potter reference, mm -hmm. but it sounds kind of like that. And it's a, it's a solid tool where you can just get a lens into, wow, this is a sweet spot for me. Mm. So you're better able to leverage that. Mm. So that's both affirming yeah. and usually creates a, uh, a pathway for self-development. Mm -hmm. have, have you seen those kinds of tools change culture? Oh, absolutely. I think that's the, that's the funnest, funnest, is that a word? Yeah. It is today. Yeah. That's the most fun I get to have sometimes, where you see light bulbs go on over people's heads, mm -hmm. and they start thinking about treating each other differently based on that insight. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, when I teach this stuff, I use this phrase all the time. All of a sudden, I realize that the reason I click with with Doug so well, and that Joel and I have some little bit of tension from time to time, is you have this finger, and you're poking me all. The, it feels like mm -hmm. and I realize, ah, I have a button shaped like that finger. Mm. <laughs> you're not trying to get under my skin. You're just being Joel. Mm -hmm. And 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 maybe I'm a little thin-skinned about this because I have this kind of a button. Mm -hmm. And maybe we could actually respect that we actually need that. Mm -hmm. That that's the original diversity mm -hmm. and inclusion exercise. That you're different than me. I'm different than you. It might take a little bit more energy for us to connect. And maybe we should never go on a fishing trip together for two or three days because <laughs> we'll make. Maybe one of us won't come back. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, it's time to chum the waters. Well, hey, chum, you're in, you know, that kind of thing. But if I'm facing a challenge that is just got me, I got to get the forehead pounded on the front of the wall, getting a flat forehead, you might be the perfect person for mm -hmm. me to go talk to. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have to be best friends, but I can have a mutual respect and value what mm -hmm. you're doing, what your perspective is. And you'll see all sorts of stuff, how I could handle this differently, because you're coming from a different lens. Mm -hmm. And that's when we start celebrating that kind of diverse thought and yeah, we could laugh about the fact that sometimes we get crosswise with each other, but we respect the other person. We know how to say, I'm sorry, forgive me when we lose it, if, if that happens. Mm -hmm. and, but meanwhile, we have built such a stronger bench because we have this diverse opinion, diverse thought, iron sharpening iron, mm -hmm. 101. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I had the same experience. My first exposure to any kind of personality profiling happened to be a Myers-Briggs uh, week-long team building exercise all around Myers-Briggs. Uh, we had a handful of us have been selected to, to go through this as, as we were going up through the climbing the corporate ladder. And uh, a f man that's still my best friend today, one of my best friends today, was in that class with me. And uh, IT guru and, mm. and uh, engineering background. And, but he was very introverted. And so being in a week-long class where there's this interaction, you know, constantly, we'd go on a break, and at the time he smoked, 
he'd disappear somewhere and smoke. Well, I, I was like, oh, well, you know, he, he needs somebody to talk to and, you know, don't want him to feel alone or isolated or whatever. So I go find him. Hey, buddy, what's going on? What are you doing over here by yourself? Da, 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 da. I had no clue he was introverted. He was recharging. Yeah. So I'm sitting there hearing all this and learning this about, about him. And so the next break, he disappears to go on a smoke. And I'm like, oh, wait, I got to let him go recharge, right? Yeah. He comes back and he's like lit up because nobody bothered him. For the first time ever. Yeah. <laughs> he thought he was just too polite to tell you, yeah, the, uh, I need a little gap here. You're making me crazy. Yeah. And, the, you know, the other thing I learned was I'm, I'm a little more on the extroverted side. I'm actually borderline introvert, extrovert. And, um, and so I couldn't sit at my desk all day long. Mm. Uh, he could. You know, so I'd be in my office. I need a break. Well, he's a friend. And we worked on a lot of projects together. And so I'd walk over, hey. What's going on? And he'd be like, "What? What? Yeah." And, uh, and I was like, "What's going on?" And he's like, "I uh, w- do you need something?" <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to get some work done here. <laughs> and like he's in a zone, and I just you know, and takes him 15 Ruined minutes to reengage because yeah. I interrupted him. Yeah, and you know, his thought and everything else. Well, again, once I learned that about who he was and how he's wired, and respected that. Yeah. I was able to go find, there was a guy, in, another engineer, super extroverted. Like you wonder, he's so extroverted, how could he be an engineer? You know, I've been accused of that. <laughs> and so I go find him and interrupt him, which he appreciated because he likes being interrupted. Yeah. You know, that to him was a sign of friendship. To my other friend, that was a sign of rudeness. Yeah. Well, so, but it was that one little thing, that one little recognition. So I purposely changed how I behaved. And so I would tell my other friend, the introvert, yeah. Yeah. Um, he'd come by when it was break time or whatever or lunchtime. He's like, hey, you want to go to lunch? So it actually enhanced our relationship. The extrovert felt more um, appreciated because I interrupted him more. Yeah, he know? wants that. And so both are still friends today. And But I changed me. I didn't change them. Yeah. That, that you know, that it's, it's such a platitude that's cutesy, whimsical, that different strokes for different folks. But that is neurobiologically as solid as a rock Mm -hmm. and figuring out what that is and where we we speak into somebody else's personality instead of from ours Mm -hmm. we package the message for the ears of the recipient not the mouthpiece from where it's coming from that's 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 secret sauce and you do you you get does it make it perfect no Mm -hmm. it's a lifelong journey to get better and better at that but once on that journey it can be really transformative so Mm -hmm. so i have to tell you my my favorite extrovert juggle engineers so you know now you can tell you're talking to an extroverted electrical engineer. Mm. When you're talking to him, he looks at your shoes. So, <laughs> sorry. That's, can't help myself. Somewhere. All right. Um, but that is you, transformative. It really is. What do you see? Uh, let's let's bring it up to today and, and the months ahead of us. Um, you know, society's getting crazy. You know, there's seems like it's crazier today than ever. There's wars and rumors of wars. There's yeah, elections, sure. and there's doubt of whether the election process, even in America, is legit. Um, you know, there's we're we're on a couple of years on the other side of the COVID scare. There's still data coming out about that. Both camps are still, you know, digging in their heels yeah. about whether you should or shouldn't, and mask or not mask, and vaccinate or not vaccinate. So it seems like there's a lot more division. But but for the business world, where do you? What are some of your uh, recommendations and or concerns uh, for for business leaders listening to this podcast. Wow, that's a that's a lofty, high level question to think about. 
you know, for me at least personally, when I worry about that, when I start worrying about this, what's going to happen if we go into a big recession? Will will my practice have to fold and all of that? What will it do to my my teams? Because everybody on the team's younger than me, except mm-hmm. for one person, and you know they still want to keep working and all of that. All, you know that, that whole security need is you know back to Maslow. Our security gets rocked instantly with that. Um, I feel like at this point that the, the, the biggest challenge that top-level folks aren't wrestling with, maybe that's an easy mm-hmm. way to tackle mm-hmm. this, is it's just really, really grappling and wrestling with the demographics of the workforce. You know, the population pyramid is what I was born and raised in. You know, um, every class after you was kind of, every class before you was smaller than yours, and we, the, 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 the world was growing, 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 growing all this time, and I was remembering grade school, we're all gonna die, there was gonna be no oxygen, there's no food, there's no room, there's no this, there's all sorts of things, we're all gonna freeze to death, mm-hmm. you know, because an ice age is coming, all that stuff, and scaring the bejeebies out of, out of you know, eight-year-olds, and that's what we were told, and, and the population did continue to expand, and the planet hit seven billion, I can't remember if it just crossed eight billion or not. We're knocking at that, mm-hmm. but you talk to any solid demographer um, in the Western or European world, and they'll talk to you that now we think the planet's going to peak out around nine billion, mm-hmm. and then kind of stabilize there, mm-hmm. because everywhere we go, everywhere in the world, fertility rates are dropping, mm-hmm. and the U.S. fertility rate has been sub two for a while, but what keeps our country growing is immigration. Mm. So that's why I'm kind of really disappointed in our Congress right now, because you guys got to fix this stuff. We need really cool people that want to get here and can't. Mm-hmm. I have a brilliant Indian young man that I've gotten to know over the last few years who's now back in India, was on, on purpose, but was almost kicked out, couldn't get through the lottery system. It's just, it's just insane. These people are incredible human beings that could contribute to our economy, to our, our country, super patriotic, mm-hmm. maybe more loyal than some Americans because we've got it so good. That's what we grew up with. Mm-hmm. Can't get them here. Mm-hmm. We've got to have a restriction on it. And then you look at how Japan's done probably the best with keeping their economy solid in spite of this. Because, mm-hmm. you know, their funny statistic is they sell way more Depends than Pampers. Because mm. their fertility rate's been so full low for so long. But if you're not adding to the base of the country, people-wise, that's the engine for growth. Mm-hmm. And you think about what happens when you have less and less babies. And the, 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 the diaper plant, the baby food jar plant, the car seat plant, well, we're going to have to cut back a little bit. Have to let you go, Joel. Mm-hmm. And then we need less minivans, and it just ripples as a whole through the economy. It's, mm-hmm. it's a going out teachers. of yeah. It's a going out of business plan for a country. It's just a slow motion grind. And if you research and read on this, you'll see different countries have tried to do it. Remember when China said at most one baby? Mm-hmm. The party line now is three. Mm-hmm. They realize, oh my God, we they listened to us. Now what are we going to do? Because they have this huge wallow. So we have this undulating hourglass now is what we have. Mm. So the reason this is so significant to me in the U.S. is that we have this talent scarcity. You know, um, the, when I talk about this in, in workshops and things, I say, hey, have you ever been driving on I-10, I-35, whatever, and see a semi-truck? What's on the back of the truck? Now hiring uh-huh. drivers. Mm-hmm. It's not a sign. It's painted. Mm-hmm. They've been looking for drivers for 20 years. Mm-hmm. You can go over to some place here in San Antonio, some taqueria, and look on the window, and there's a sign, help wanted, and the tape is so yellow because they put that sign up 20 years ago and they haven't taken it down. Mm-hmm. It's just constant looking for talent. And I think it's even worse for us Texans in general, San Antonio certainly, um, but our economy is expanding. Mm-hmm. 
we're we're creating more and more jobs, which just makes where's the talent going to come from? Mm-hmm. And that just puts a huge pressure on people looking for opportunities. You know, headhunters are calling up people. Pardon me, recruiters mm-hmm. are calling up people trying to get them to go over here because there's just this huge vacuum need over here. Mm-hmm. Well, boy, the first thing I should think people would want to do then is I really better take care of my talent pool. Hmm. I really ought to be investing in my people to have them see that I really, really, really care about them and they stay there. That's a talent retention strategy because mm-hmm. we haven't even talked about that undulation of the hourglass with boomer retirement. Mm-hmm. There's roughly, so Nick, who I mentioned before, right hand, long, long, long time friend. There's literally about twice as many of me running around the workforce as there are him. Mm-hmm. So my, my peer group, a lot of them are starting to retire and punch out, and Nick's early 50s, he's going to keep going for a while. Mm-hmm. And if you think about typical su- succession, who does the punching out 68-year-old CEO give the reins to the Ferrari, the golden keys to? Mm-hmm. It's probably somebody who's in their early 50s, mid-50s. It's about the right. And then the staff underneath them age-wise is probably in the, in the kind of in the early 40s or late 30s. You know, it's, we got our boomers and our Gen Xers and then our millennials. So if there's twice as many of me as there are Gen Xers, and we're going to um, have a lot of us retire, who's going to be the backfill? Mm-hmm. Well, we're losing two, and there's only one to replace them. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I've spoken at conferences of IT professionals. They talk about, we can't find enough IT people. I need software developers. I need network engineers. I can't even find techs to pull the plenum to run Cat5 cable through the ceiling and configure the routers. I, let alone Joel's laptop died, and i got to rebuild the dang thing. I, I can't find people. Oh, there's a, there's a, education needs to do a real problem different than getting us more IT people tomorrow. And then you go to a hospital conference. Oh, my gosh. I can't find nurses. I can't find doctors. I can't find phlebotomists. You know, Alamo Colleges, you need to do a better job of giving me more phlebotomists and more LVNs and more this and more radiation techs and more sterilization techs and blah, 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 blah. Uh, pick it. Mm-hmm. You talk to USA about finance people. You talk to engineering firms about engineering people. Talk to CPAs. We can't find mm-hmm. enough. Literally heard that the head of the Texas chapter was at a luncheon. Uh, not, yeah, the Texas chapter. It's a rotating one-year board. So he's mm-hmm. the chair of the board, I guess, whatever you call it, for the mm-hmm. Texas CPA Society. And he's got seven or eight PowerPoint slides about how much demand the profession is. And we've got to graduate more CPAs because we're all so exhausted because we need more CPAs. Every firm is looking for more CPAs mm-hmm. all across San Antonio, all across Texas. Mm-hmm. Well, after you've heard this from like seven different industries, you think maybe there's something bigger than... Alamo Colleges or UTSA or A&M isn't producing the right amount of graduates. We didn't have the babies. Mm. I was a family of four kids. Mm-hmm. I have two. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the story. Mm-hmm. There's lots of folks. Well, I was a family of three kids, but I'm only going to have one, or I'm going to have none. Where's the base going to come from? So thank God for immigration. That's kind of kind of buoying things up. My, I don't have data at my fingertips. I'm not a demographer. I just mm-hmm. play one on podcasts. That um, you look at Portugal. And Spain and Greece, some of the most struggling parts of the EU, they're constantly almost in default, and Germany's going to bail them out again, you know, some way to suspend their loan payments to keep their economy afloat. Well, that's what 1.6% or 1.6 fertility looks like after 30, 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Unemployment, you know, the, the unemployment rate in Greece is higher than the unemployment rate was in the U.S. during the Depression, mm. but it's been that way for like 25 years, 30 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. 
This is, this is not sustainable. Mm. So you look at that, I think a great strategy can be able to take care of your talent, recognize that, go on offense even more so mm-hmm. to protect your talent base, and feel good that you're in Texas where things are expanding, expanding. You know, every so often, we you know, the company do, country does go into a recession, and what does it really do in San Antonio? Not much. Not much. We have huge financial sector services here between USAA, Citicorp, and all the others. We have this lower level. Granted, it's not the it's not an interesting it's an interesting career. It's not maybe the best career, but we have all this wonderful call centers that are here. Mm-hmm. We have all this military. We have the medicine. We have the military medicine intersect with that. Mm-hmm. We have all the tourism. IT is still a pillar. IT, we're a cybersecurity mecca. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't we, we know there's a bunch of black cool cybersecurity here that nobody can talk about because mm-hmm. it's all top secret stuff. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, kind of could be dubbed the most recession-proof city in the country. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we have data that would back it. But so I think for San Antonio leaders, number one thing you should worry about is worry about taking good care of your people mm-hmm. and finding good people, treating them well, know you lose some, um, and work hard. You're going to have to work hard on pouring into those millennials because you may not have that. You know, that's that hospital person. Well, I got this fantastic nurse that's been running this this floor for me for for 20 years, absolutely amazing people skills. She knows how to deal with the huge ego, big talent of this, uh, I don't know, this house type person. That's mm-hmm. Dr. Doogie Hauser that just got out of med school who is absolutely brilliant, but thinks they're God's gift to the planet, and yet keep the staff happy, et cetera. And, and she, probably a she, has told me, 18 months, I'm uh-huh. gone. Yeah. I have no backfill. I have some spectacular 35-year-olds, but half of them want to work contract. They make more money working contract. They work for six weeks, eight weeks, and then they go to Europe for two months. Then they come back and work. I have several friends whose daughters and sons are nurses that are doing that, just that, because they, mm-hmm. they make more money doing that. They have more fun. Mm-hmm. They have a much better lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, what am I going to do? I said, well, you better find, look for some talent. You know, we tend to overvalue experience without doing enough research to find talent. Mm-hmm. Long-term talent will beat experience. But mm-hmm. when we're looking at a resume, up oh, this person's too young, and we dis- diss them right there. Mm-hmm. When actuality, that person given a chance might fly down that learning curve and be way better mm-hmm. than that person that has, quote, all the right experience. So you- and I think that's where the Fortune 500, uh, I assume they're still doing that well, but they did that well in the late 80s, early 90s, where they were very good at identifying potential candidates Absolutely. And dumping a ton of, um, and like, and uh, I had, you mentioned Doug Kahlberg. He was on the podcast a, a bit ago. He he early on uh, saw op- a lot of young op- opportunity in the San Antonio operation. And so he spent a ton of money on training all us young guys. Mm-hmm. And um, it was because and a great a great deal of, of who I am today is because of the fact that the corporation identified me, Doug in particular, uh, and others on his team, uh, made sure I was in the right places at the right time, getting the right kind of training. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, you know, especially in a bad economy, uh, what do they, what do companies cut first? Training Training. and consulting, right? And marketing. Those are usually the three big levers they pull first. And, and I think what I hear you're saying, that'd be a mistake this time around. Yeah, if you, if you could weather the storm somehow, and, and if you have to cut, I'm, I'm a big fan. There's old, the old case study I love on this is the Johnsonville, Johnsonville Foods case. Harvard wrote it up as a case study, and you know the family business was not doing good. And of course, you go to HEB, there's Johnsonville food stuff everywhere now, but 
they did a cut, and they did a brutal cut, like 30-some, 40%. And the, the, the son, the grandson, whatever, of the founder had everybody in the company come into the, the big room and said, that's the only cut we're making. We're not going to have this incremental cut some, then cut some more, then cut some more, because that's just like, when's the sword next going to fall? No one's mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. no to gravitate to it. So they talked about, this is terrible. We hate this. We just lost, many of us lost friends and colleagues for many years, but here's what we got left. So we wish them well, and, and we hope they land on their feet, but we got what we got. And if we can't fix this, we're going to close it. So rest assured, there is no more cuts coming, and it's almost kind of like the Columbia Fire thing. We're going to use this to kind of galvanize us and pull together. And, you know, the, and it's a wonderful story of turnaround, and I, can't, I don't know what their data is right now on the market share and things, but at the time they had a huge waiting list for people to try to apply. They had many, many applicants. So you build something that's remarkable, mm-hmm. and then you probably don't have a talent shortage. You get to screen and filter. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if Southwest is still what it was, but you know that was their kind of mantra. They would have more applicants for a position than Harvard had applicants for students per seat. Mm. So their joke was, hey, it's harder to get into Southwest than it is to get into Harvard. <laughs> because there were, they'd have, I want to work at Southwest to hear how a cool place it is, since they have an accounting opening, and they have 3,000 people that are qualified to apply for that opening. Mm-hmm. Well, you've built something that's so remarkable because of the culture mm-hmm. that you don't, you don't have a talent shortage. Mm-hmm. You get to screen and filter and pick the creme de la creme. You know, the, the, the fire department here has, has some of that kind of data. I don't know if it still exists that strong, but you have so many applicants to be a fireman. Mm-hmm. They could take the best of the best of the best because mm-hmm. they had built a positive culture. It's a cool profession. You're in a very well-run city. Mm-hmm. I'm, as far as I know, we're still the only large city that's AAA bond rated. Mm. Nobody else is. This mm. is a very well-run city. And, you know, that kind of attraction is like people want to come from all over the country to come work for the city of San Antonio and the fire department. So applicants out the wazoo. Hmm. So that's, you kind of can go on offense of this, Mm -hmm. but I think if you don't at least recognize that demographic of how big the stakes are, that you're you're, going to have a tough time just finding resumes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I like to show it in a little kind of vignette that people stick to. If you've seen that movie Cinderella Man, where Russell Crowe is the pro boxer, and it's during the recession, or that's part of the recession, the Great Depression. And he's this really, really talented boxer, but there's just, there's no, there's no money, there's no food, and people are selling their furniture. And, and so he and a bunch of all the other guys go down to this, like longshoreman to the dock, and there's a gate. And there's this boss guy with, with the, kind of the, the hat on, I'll take you and you, uh, you, you, you. That's all I got, guys. Come back tomorrow and pull in five guys to day labor, mm-hmm. more like what we're used to on certain parts of San Antonio. Mm-hmm. This is people that were accountants, financiers, whatever. They just needed to find some bit of pay to buy a loaf of bread for their family. And so Russell Crowe finally gets picked, and his hand's all busted up. He's not quite making right because he's got a broken hand from boxing, and you know, the guy covers for him because, you know, don't screw this up because there's 50 guys that want this job. And I liken it to, well, that's today's word, world if you're kind of the typical millennial. The millennial is the guy behind the gate. I'll work for you or maybe you or maybe you because I can pick and choose because there's so, so many openings. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's a call for a leader. What kind of a positive culture are you making? Mm. Um, there's a fantastic researcher at Harvard. was on the business side. I think he's now the dean of the law school, uh, Ashish Nanda. And I heard him speak at the Global Leadership Summit up in Chicago that Willow Creek used to put on. Mm-hmm. And he drew these things with flip charts. 
and um, just quick, simple stick figure, simple thing. Not what you expect from a Harvard kind of professor, and he's funny. And I shamelessly stole it. I said, that is awesome. That's genius. I've, I don't know how many times I've, the same kind of animation and PowerPoint, I've done his little chalk talk because it's just absolutely brilliant. But it ends with this whole concept of that the number one thing, and this is right out of the Harvard MBA curriculum, the number one thing a leader needs to do is create a positive work environment. Mm. It's not about investment banking. It's not about analytics. It's not about the world's most complicated pivot table that you've automated with Power BI and all that. But the most important thing per Harvard Business School is to create a positive work environment. That's the number one imperative. Mm. You can screw up everywhere, all sorts of other ways, but without that, you're, you're, you're hamstringing yourself mm. and your organization. Well, Brad, we, uh, we could probably go on for hours, and uh, yeah, I, guess I, I guess I'll just have to have you back. Uh, Be happy to do that. What are your final thoughts on, on what we've covered today? Well, I think there's a great theme in there, uh, that maybe a big idea is know yourself, know what's going to be opus for you, mm-hmm. the work that's going to recharge you versus drain you. Mm-hmm. Um, understand your limitations. Be self-aware that you know, I could never be an NBA center. Mm-hmm. The wrong DNA. Mm-hmm. Popovich is arguably the best coach in the history of pro basketball. He'd make me better, but mm-hmm. just the raw material's not there. Mm-hmm. It's just not there. We tend to understand that when it comes to sports, but we don't get it when it comes to other aspects of your ability to delegate your ability to back off at times and things like that. So hire wisely. Find people that could do stuff that you'll never be good at to be part of your team. Mm-hmm. Recognize that in this competitive environment with this undulating hourglass of population and talent scarcity, it's just worse in San Antonio or Austin or Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, because our state's expanding. We're, we're making new jobs way faster than we're having babies here. Mm-hmm. So that protecting your talent is a really good offensive strategy to do, but looking at Harvard and things like that, creating a positive place is the, always been the recipe for success. Mm-hmm. And treating your people that way is definitely the collaborative model versus the leader distancing him from him. From him. So you want to be too close to your troops because they'll lose respect for you. How about they already know your weaknesses? They just, it's just not safe to tell you. They see it. You get a little bit closer to them and open up your kimono a little bit, be authentic and transparent with what you're struggling with and finally said, hey boss, I'll just take care of that for you. Mm-hmm. you know, they, they don't expect you to be perfect. They expect you to be real. That's good. That's good. Brad, it's been a pleasure. Mine too. Thanks for thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule and, and uh, uh, you shared a lot of good stuff today. Thank you. I appreciate it's it. It's a pleasure to be here.